Okay. Um, last week we ended with singing that beautiful Horatio Spafford hymn, um, It Is Well, It Is Well With My Soul. And in a, a moment of beautiful connection, Dave Armstrong, who as you all know is in Israel and Palestine at the minute on a peacemaking tour, he sent us senior leaders a photograph on Monday of the hotel he was staying with in Israel, staying in, and it's owned by the Spafford family. And in the hallway was the transcript of that hymn, the original transcript of the, the hymn from that day. And oh, it gave me goosebumps. And I thought, how beautiful is that, that um, all those miles away, uh, some little connection is being made. So I thought that was rather gorgeous. Um, this morning I'm speaking to our, our next part, living out of weakness and vulnerability. And I love this Sarah Bessie quote, anyone who gets to the end of their life with the exact same beliefs and opinions as they had at the beginning is doing it wrong. Uh, and I think there's wisdom in that. And behind me will come up that quote that I used last week from Elizabeth Kubler-Ross on grief and on loss. And she talks about how beautiful people do not just happen. Um, and that in embracing grief and loss and question and doubt, we enlarge our souls. And that essentially was what I wanted to talk, I spoke about last week. Um, and I believe that we're called to be fully human, followers of the one who modeled it, and that's what I speak on today. But I've been struck by a couple of conversations in the last few weeks. and. Uh, Last Sunday, a friend and I went out for lunch after the gathering, and as we sat enjoying some food, he said to me, Steph, tell me about when you experienced grief and loss first. Um, and we had a conversation about that, and it really stayed with me during the week, that question that he asked me. I had taught on grief and loss, I had spoken about it, but I maybe didn't talk about my own story. And so I, I, I sat with that. And I've also been very struck by a conversation with someone else in the community who said that the first time they came to Redeemer, I stated the fact, and it is a fact, that whilst we believe in healing and we see God heal all the time, it does not always happen. And they said to me, it was the first time I've ever heard that truth spoken at the front of a church. And that has really stayed with me, that that has been someone's experience of church and experience of truth-telling. Um, and, and so I wanted to speak to that this morning from my own story a little bit. I wanted to say that when this friend asked me last Sunday about grief and loss um, and also about healing, I suppose if I'm going to talk about weakness and vulnerability, then it's right to maybe on the journey, some of the journey that I've been on. I love this quote from a Jodie Pico novel. This is what it means to be human, Bex thought. We are all simply canvases for our scars. And, and that is true, because that is where we become authentic and we become real. So I guess, as I said to my friend last Sunday, the first time I'd lost grandparents and that was devastating and, and that's a grief that all of us will walk through. But I guess my first real experience of gut-wrenching grief and loss was when I had a miscarriage. And I was absolutely devastated. We were devastated. And there's not a year goes by in April that I don't think about, I wonder who that little one might have been. 
And it doesn't hurt the same way anymore. It's not the grief that it was almost 30 years ago, but it was deep. And I learned that what I needed in those days and in the months after it, and it, it transformed how I try to be with those who are broken. I didn't want to hear people's views of why it happened. I didn't want to hear, oh, he works all things together for good. I didn't want to hear it all wrapped up on a shiny bow, like you'll be pregnant before you know it and you won't know yourself. I didn't want any of that. It didn't help me. It didn't bring me comfort. It was, I wanted someone to sit with me and just let me know that I wasn't on my own. And it utterly changed how I try to be with people when they're broken and grieving and in loss. Because actually, when you try and explain why something has happened, you're putting yourself in the place of the Lord. And you're saying, I know more than you do. Or you're giving me some really unhelpful idea about why little ones don't always survive. And that was not helpful to me and it was not good. And what I needed was to know that I wasn't on my own. And then when I thought about that conversation about healing and me saying, healing does not always happen. I have to say that I have walked miraculous instant healing in my life. I have. I, I lost sight when I was pregnant with Tom. Um, I, I had lost my sight. They said it wouldn't return. And uh, it's a long story. But in a final, I got tired of people offering to pray for me because when I opened my eye and I still couldn't see, they all got disappointed and I got guilty. And it was just a big sorry mess. And then one night, very close to his birth, a, a beautiful woman said, I'd like to pray for healing. And I was like, it's okay. And she said, no, I would. And she prayed six words. Thank you that you can heal. Please heal her. And I opened my eyes and I could see. And my body, my retina, bears the scar of the bleed that caused the lo loss of sight. But my eyesight doesn't match the scar. And so every time I'm at the, the optician, which happens now that I'm becoming old and I'm getting my sight tested, we have the same conversation where the optician says, You've got a scar, so you've had a bleed, but your eyesight doesn't match. And then I get to tell them, yes, I believe in prayer and healing and a miracle. And it's beautiful. But I've also stood at the graveside of people who I didn't think were going to die of cancer. I've also buried people by their own hand that I never thought would happen. I've also prayed faithfully for so many things and I haven't seen them. And both, and they all are true. One does not diminish what God is doing or what God does, but they're all true. And so I firmly believe that we need to live out of our brokenness, our weakness, and our vulnerability because it reminds us that we're in charge of practically nothing, but that we are walked along this journey by one who will never leave us. And that is how I wanted to begin. Brokenness and vulnerability are one of the key themes, the major path, biblical pathway to growth, and I want to invite us into that. I want us to think about that today, about how we as individuals and as a community can actually own our brokenness and our vulnerability and our weakness and in a way grow, grow because we will be with others. Behind me is what Jesus himself said, 
Unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Death and resurrection. Death and resurrection. And so sometimes we have to put to death what we're hoping for, what we're believing for, or what we're doing in order that new life will come. And I want to invite us into that. In psychological theory, Carl Jung says that we are all born narcissists. <laughs> it is a choice to move away from that. We're all born desperate to feed our own souls with what we need. And we, are, we think that everything begins and ends with us. And it takes spiritual disciplines, in my view, to learn to live, to care for the other. We need to empty ourselves of our ego-driven desire to meet our needs at all, po at all points. The first beatitude that Jesus spoke of, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. If I could recommend a brilliant little book, Poverty of Spirit, I can't recommend it enough. There's a quote behind me from the, the writer, Johannes Metz. Poverty of spirit is the meeting place of heaven and earth, the mysterious place where God and humanity encounter one another, the point where infinite mystery meets concrete existence. And so when we start to discipline ourselves and live humbly and live awareness of our nothingness, that is where we encounter God and when we encounter heaven. He goes on to talk about how every authentic religious act is directed at the concreteness of God in our human neighbours and their world. So he would argue that when we live in a poverty of spirit, aware of our own vulnerability, of our weakness and of our brokenness, we can do nothing but respond to the phrase we love and redeemer, the imago day in the other. That I will look at you and I won't see you, I will see the image of God that is found in you. And surely if I spent my days connecting with the image of God that I carry and that connects with you, we would live in a very different way together. You know that I really love neuroscience because it, it is my work and I love it when all these years later it, it reminds us what God has designed us for. And so I want to talk about attachment theory, my favourite theory of all in psychology. And it's about how we were fearfully and wonderfully made and we were designed for a connection. So when a little baby is born, every baby comes into the world looking for someone who's looking for them. And this never stops. So every newborn baby spends their days looking to check, am I alone or am I loved? And so they spend their days looking for someone who is looking for them. And so if you're the parent of a newborn or a small baby, your little one learns their sense of themselves and their identity through knowing that they are loved by you. In the first three years of life, the psychological task is to feel loved, lovable, and capable. So you feel loved when your needs are met, you feel loved when someone smiles at you, you feel loved when you're sad and someone comforts you, you feel loved when you're hungry and someone feeds you, they look at you and they remind you that you're loved. 
and you feel capable when you start to do little things and someone gives a big yay. You know those yay moments that you give a baby? You see them put a brick on top of another and you go, yay! That helps them feel capable and safe in the world. And the facts are that we don't ever grow out of that need to be known and to be seen. We don't ever grow out of that need to be reminded that we are loved, that we are not on our own, and that someone gets us. And very often, it's the faithful, godly friends who do that for us. Yes, of course, our Father does that. And intimacy with the Father is an essential daily practice. But for us to feel connected, we need to connect with others, the Imago Dei in others. So if your baby and little one is fed and soothed and made smile and comforted and reminded that they're not on their own, the brain actually forms brilliant neural pathways. And in an ideal world, when these needs are met, they form, I like the image, of big open highways. They can go anywhere, they can do anything. But the sympathetic nervous system is the one that keeps us moving and keeps us active. And then there's the parasympathetic nervous system that is the one that keeps us safe and slows us down. So when your baby is suddenly reaching out for something or about to toddle out the door or whatever, you shout at them and you, you, you stop them. And that puts a break on their movement, literally. But when they are talking or when they're developing and they get a no all the time, what comes in to them is the concept of shame because they suddenly realise, oh, I was getting that wrong. Oh, I was getting that wrong. And so their little pathways that maybe would be at any one motorway becomes a bit of a B-mode. Children who are abused and neglected, they unfortunately develop small roads of dead ends. And it takes years and years of them to repair. So the early years are so important, but I don't think we're that different. I think that very often, Shame is the most toxic, toxic strategy that comes, in my view, from the pit of hell because it stops us and it stops us living as creative, free, loved beings. And so I want to speak about how... So psychological theory would say that when you get told no or you get harsh parenting or you get unmet needs, shame comes into the psyche of the child. And if we look at Genesis 2.22, when God created man and woman, they were walking about naked but no shame. Shame is the swampland of the soul. And it, it, is a, it follows when the laws of God were not followed and that the curse came and we ended up having difficulties in relationship. Women had, had challenges in childbirth and we ended up having to work and toil for our living. Shame joined us then. Shame is mentioned 190 times in the Old Testament and 46 in the New Testament. And when we are shamed, take a moment and think, in the last week, maybe in the last 24 hours, maybe this morning, when did you last feel shame? What happened? And think about what happened in your body. Because what we know from neurobiology is that when we feel shame, we close down, we retreat, we stay silent, we withdraw. 
at the very moment where we should be connecting and reaching out and being vulnerable and being real, when shame impacts us, we close down. It is not how we are supposed to live. We disconnect from our thoughts and our feelings, we isolate ourselves, and we move away from others. And shame, as I've said before, is the primary strategy of the enemy to keep us from connection and weakness and vulnerability. Because when we do that, that is how we were designed to live. We have varying ways that we respond to shame. Um, and Pete discusses those in the book. Some of us flee from it. We keep ourselves busy, we do lots of great things, but we keep ourselves busy. Or we develop addictions. And some of you might be sort of quirky when I say, well, I've got no addictions. Think of how much time you spend on your phone. <laughs> Think of how much Netflix you watch. I'm talking to myself here. I'm on a current plan to reduce my phone use. And you know, you get your weekly report on an iPhone. And I proudly put in the Wilson's WhatsApp this week, mine was down 77% last week. Get it. 77%. None of them can believe that their mum has not lifted her phone as often as she does. I am determined to, to limit the use of that. I see that as an addiction in my own life. Constantly checking, not even doing anything. Another response to, sh to shame is to fight. We become angry and we can become bitter or we become critical. Sometimes when we're shamed, we do that. And sometimes we hide. We do what Adam and Eve did when they suddenly became aware of their nakedness. We find fig leaves and we, we cover ourselves. We cover the parts of ourselves that we don't want others to know or to understand. And we never tell our full story. And I wonder how many of us really are real about who we are and what we struggle with. You know that lovely phrase in, in Hebrews where it talks about there's a cloud of witnesses? And I sometimes think in my life, who are my cloud of witnesses who really know what's going on in my life? Who understand the things that I struggle with, that I find hard, that maybe are grieving me or I have questions about? Do we have those people? And so I want you to think this morning, are there moments in my day where I feel shame and I allow that to be the story of my day? I allow that to be the story of that day and of my other days. Instead of challenging those thoughts with actually, I am beloved and loved and I am redeemed. That is the story, and I wonder how much bigger lives we would all live if we lived out of that story. If we look at Jesus, the, the model, if we are followers of Jesus, I want to read from Philippians 2 in the message. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. If we look at the life of Jesus, the very model of how to be human, 
when the devil tempted him in the wilderness after he had been fasting for 40 days, he used his humanity. You're hungry, sort yourself out. Throw yourself off, you can save yourself. And Jesus kept going back to his humanity in those days. He asked the disciples when he was going away to pray, he said, stay awake, stay awake while I go and pray. He showed his vulnerability. He wept with those who wept. He showed anger in the temple. He grieved his friends. He never ever lived in a way that was not authentically human. And the cross is the most stunning example of how he could have saved himself. That's what he was taunted with when he was on the cross. He said, no, I will do the will of my father. I will do the will of my father. And so I want to remind us this morning that if we are called to be followers of Jesus then we have, and how we were designed was to live in connection with one another, to live in reality with one another, to own our weakness and our vulnerability, then that is the call on our lives. And Scazzaro says beautifully that if we live as a community, aware of our weakness and our vulnerability, we will be present with others, we will let things go, we will be more aware of God than of others, We will see people as gifts. We will be open, soft, and curious. We will delight in showing our own vulnerability. We will be approachable. We will be transparent and we will be weak. And we will be very slow to give input and judgment. What a beautiful community it would be a part of who lived in that way. Do we live every day like those who are deeply loved by the Father, the Father who sings over us, or is shame the dominant narrative of our days? And that is the question I want to leave us with. Is that, what is the dominant narrative that defines our days? I wanted to, as you know, we have three folks from Ukraine living with us, and um, they hosted a little party in our house last night, and... They invited friends that they've made, neighbours and neighbours of ours and people that Svetlana works with. And they also had another guy with them who comes to all of the parties in this group. Um, And the people that she works with are also, they came here as asylum seekers and refugees. And uh, this guy came, he was sort of middle-aged and he brought his guitar and there was a lot of singing and it was good fun. It was the most random group of people in our house last night, I have to be honest, but it was absolutely brilliant fun. And uh, I couldn't quite work out how this guy got into this group of people who live in Lisbon, who have come from other countries, Latvia, Russia, Ukraine, and he seems to be at everything they do. And he had his guitar and he was singing all the rest of it. And Steve helped him out to the car at the end of the night and they got into conversation and uh, he doesn't know anything about us, and we didn't really know anything about him. And he said to Stephen, you know, um, Christians in this country are really judgmental, and it's not that straightforward, and everything's not just so black and white. So he was preaching to the choir of my husband, as you would imagine. So Stephen said, yes, absolutely. And then he said, you know, I'm a retired Elam pastor. And, and they started to chat about that. And when Steve came back up 
the, the road from his car, we started, I, he said, he told me a little bit more of his story. And I, I was utterly overwhelmed and thought, he's in his 60s and he's a retired pastor. And he's spending his Saturday nights with these people. And when we were talking about doing a Christmas gathering, they were saying, he has to come. He comes to all of our parties. And what Svetlana's boss told me was, he's lonely since his wife died. And he comes into the cafe, and that's how we got to be friends. And so he comes into the cafe every week, and they have literally welcomed him into their lives. And I thought, I wonder do his parishioners welcome him in the same way? Does he, is he overwhelmed with invites since he's lost his wife and he's actually lonely? And I wondered, my theory is that when those guys have come to this country and are living as strangers in a foreign land, their hearts are expanded, perhaps, in a way that maybe ours aren't. Because they know their stars. They know what it's like to be on your own. They know what it's like to feel sad. And yesterday in our house was a sad day because whilst it says on the news that curse on is free and it's all good and people are returning, they're bombing the place apart. So yesterday was a very difficult day for our guests because they were talking to family who are continuing to being obliterated. And yet it was a beautiful day because they welcomed their friends. And the both is true. So on the days that are our hardest, they can also be our most beautiful. But they're only our most beautiful if we own our mess, if we own our pain, if we own our trauma, and if we invite others into it. And I watched this little man last night sing away with the guitar in our front room, not knowing that he was a fellow or follower of Jesus, just thinking, how on earth did this all happen? And it all happened because one human who knows their own scars and knows their own pain, connected and saw pain in the other. And that, to me, is profound and is deeply, <coughs> deeply challenging. So if we go back to that idea of living perhaps more in our weakness and our pain and our vulnerability, what creativity and beauty around us could we create if we allowed ourselves to live open and vulnerable if we challenged every day the voices of shame that limit us and close us off from one another, how would we then live in the kingdom of the now and the not yet? Because that is where we are. And how do we make our peace with living there and finding beauty in all that happens to us and all that is going on around us? So just now... As we come to the table, I'm going to invite the band to return. I want to finish with this quote from this book on poverty of spirit. It will come up behind me. The legacy of God's total commitment to humanity, the proof of God's fidelity to our poverty, is the cross. The cross is the sacrament of poverty of spirit, the sacrament of authentic humanness in a sinful world. It is the sign that one human being remained true to his humanity and he accepted it in full obedience. And so if we are the followers of Jesus and he was prepared to remain in his humanity and his vulnerability and his brokenness to death on a cross, 
then surely we are invited to live authentic, vulnerable, weak, broken lives that invite connection with one another and connection to him. So let's stand and let's think about that just as we come to the table. Rosie and Isabella are going to serve us the bread and the wine. So I'd invite you to take your time. Rosie's on body of Christ working for you and you're on the blood of Christ shed for you. Take your time, come and consider you are the beloved being called oh and we've got a third one <laughs> always good to have a sister who's ready to help. Okay. Uh, take your time, come and have bread and wine and we will continue to worship. <laughs>